Well, I knew this episode was coming the entire time, and you might have assumed as well. It's time to talk to my mom. Dinah Troxel is an artist, an actor, a director, co-founder of Mountain Community Theatre. Her primary art form is oils, but she does it all. She lives in Northern California, moved up there after my father passed away in 2004. She is remarried. She has three kids. We all have children, so she is a grandma extraordinaire. My mom paints pretty much every day, and for a professional life, she is a face painter. And she is working, still, face-painting people at fairs. She sees beauty in everything. And she really makes an amazing space for children. Here's my mom, Diana Wright Troxel. Diana Troxel, how are you? I'm very excited about doing this. I'm really nervous. Well, I'm nervous too. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. I think that you and I, um, well, for instance, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, and I, I was coming off of one of your other podcasts, how they said how much more they learned about the person. Mm Mm-hmm. You said that about how much more you learn doing the podcast, yeah. but you and I know everything about each other. Like, what can we learn? You know, it's not. True. <laughs> no, we're still. Did you listen to the Bonnie episode? Yes. We still exist in those columns, right? Even though we know each other, it's only what's outside ourselves that we know. Yeah. Some level. Yeah. I mean, you know, your kids, right? And you know, your mom. And that's just, that's a big part of it. Yeah. I think I'm nervous because. I feel like I've got all this expectation of what the conversation with you is going to be about, right? The conversation with Marina, it was right after that, that I think I started thinking about talking with you as well. And that conversation was intense and changed my relationship with Marina a bit. It was very powerful. And other people have communicated with me that, that really changed the kind of awareness of what her life is like. The transparency she shared with that really changed the way they, she, they're thinking about her. Yeah. So we've got a, a high bar. Exactly. I mean, I'm what, number 26? 27. Very hard, high bar. Yeah. 27. You really have done it every single day. Amazing. I have done Well, I've done it every single day, but there's a couple of days that it's like me and Maggie talking. So I've done a few of those. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's also stuff that we've talked about over time that we've we've dealt with and such that is intense. And I, I also, I've done a lot of this Yes, every day. I've, and a lot of these conversations has been overwhelming and I've cried and I've poured my heart out and I'm a little bit squeamish to do that. Yeah. When I was doing the Bonnie episode. Yeah. That was extremely powerful. And when I did that episode after I recorded it, cause I recorded it during the day I just postponed editing it, postponed editing it, postponed editing it. It was late, late at night before I started because I don't know if I wanted to feel those feelings again and listen to myself cry and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we all get through things. So what were you going to say? I was just going to say it's really brave what you're doing, hanging your heart on your sleeve or whatever. I mean, being so intimate with so many people uh, publicly. Very power- That's what's so powerful about it. 
it's the kind of art that I really identify with that, you know, the technical thing works and there's something real and deep and significant also. I mean, it's just a pretty picture. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. there's enough pretty pictures. But there's, it's pretty powerful what you're doing. It's healing. I felt like what you and Marina went through was very healing for the two. And for me, too, because yeah. I've been going along with her life, too, in a very intimate way. Yeah. When you're painting a portrait of someone, what are you thinking about? Um, a lot of the thinking. That's why I listen to music. I don't really... I want to get into the space where thinking, quote unquote, the way, the way that we define thinking as a verbal thing is kind of disappears. And the only thinking I'm doing is how long is that line? Uh, where's the next color? How do I mix that color? And I'm not, I'm not attached to the verbal as much as I am when I talk about it. My experience is that I get to know them much deeper than I ever thought I could. What do you mean? I fall in love with people that I just thought were my friends. What is that about? Well, I think you probably have to go into what art is about more. I'm a painter because when I paint, I'm transported to a different part of myself or my brain gets so happy. I have this ecstatic bliss that I aim for. And when I, when I put the painting down or I go outside, the world is gorgeous, stunning. The simplest things become gorgeous. So that's why I'm a painter. So when I do that with portraits, I fall in love with a person. I notice things about them. I think about phrases go through my head, moments that I've had with them. No, and then, you know, and then an hour or two later, I go back to, ah, why isn't he washing the dishes? You know, (laughs) the mundane comes back. So I have to paint again and again. (laughs) Because I want that ecstatic bliss, that place you get to as a uh, meditator, you know. So it's the painting is a vehicle for you to get in that blissful space. Yes, absolutely. It's not the painting itself that's the thing? No. In fact, that really confused me at first. When I first had those feelings, that awareness, the painting was terrible. The painting wasn't any good for a long time. Even today, even now, I don't understand how to judge it, what's good and what's bad. I put something online that I hate and everyone loves it. I put something that's like my best work and nobody pays any attention. I don't, I don't have any way of, of judging it at all. Uh, all I can do is love that space that happens when I do it. The object is not important. It's the vehicle. Okay. Yes, definitely. <laughs> that's really interesting because it feels like There's two parts of that, right? You're not really sharing. I mean, we're talking about it a bit, but you're not really sharing the actual experience you have when you paint and that and the reason you actually do it, this ecstatic bliss that you're able to get into and get into that flow. You're not really sharing that with other people. And the painting is a side effect of that thing. Right. And then there's a second part of that is that 
you're a painter and egotistically you get strokes from that and you're able to sell it maybe and all those other things. So those seem to be almost in conflict with each other. I'm not sure I would use the word conflict, but they're different. They're definitely different things. Absolutely different things. In fact, because I'm almost, I sometimes think that because I'm not that successful, they really have to be different things. Because if I get attached to the result, I won't paint. You know, I'm not getting paid for it. Why should I do it, right? I have to do it for the other reason. At the same time, you are also are one of the most successful artists I know. Because you, for the last 40 years, have been selling paintings, thousands of them every weekend. Right. Face painting. You're a face painter. I'll let, catch everybody else up. Um, and that is completely commercial art. And they're all your designs, mostly. Sometimes it's an emulation of some other pieces. But you definitely created and you transformed into that medium. So those are highly sellable do you get into ecstatic bliss when you face paint? Sometimes. Mostly I'm just very, very happy to be with the children. I get into a love space oh. um, and time disappears. That part of the bliss happens. I had a really interesting experience this year because I went for a whole year without doing, without face painting because of COVID. And when I went back to face painting after a year of doing my oil paintings, when I first started painting, I said, this is really boring. Why am I doing this? You know, a heart, a star, who gives a... And then the little kid looks at me with all this love in their eyes, and they go, ah, I love it, you know. And I fall in love with this little four-year-old. And then I get into that part of me, the mother, the the lover of people, and it it's so intimate. I have such connection with those children. And so then time disappears. I'm really happy. At the end of the day, I've got money. It's all fine. I, I keep doing it because it's really <laughs> nice to make a living on something that's so sweet and loving and nice and, you know, all that. But I don't. And it, there are times when I have that ecstatic bliss, but it's not the same. It's not exactly the same thing. It, what it is is you look around and you see everything made out of paint. You see the, you see with the visual eye rather than the uh, verbal. But with the when I'm with the kids, I'm sort of in both those places, mostly being with them, which is not visual or verbal. It's just a connection. Of course, you're also being verbal with them. You're talking about what they want. You're asking to sit still. You're you're communicating all with human beings at that point. Right. Do you get sometimes in the space where you look at the sky and like everything's beautiful? That that effect you have when you leave the studio and walk outside and see that. Does it happen with face painting? Yeah, it does a bit. I, I wouldn't say it's as. It's a good question, Lyle, because I haven't ever thought of that. But yeah, I, I don't think it's as intense. That ecstatic bliss thing. It's slightly different. Good question. I have to think about that. Because if I were able to be in that space, I wouldn't have to do oil painting. Yeah, it isn't exactly the same. Isn't it interesting that we have different parts of our brain? So you're saying that you actually do oil painting because of that ec ecstatic bliss? Yes. Did you ever find that ecstatic bliss, do you find it in other forms of art Cons uh, consistently? Even like watercolor. I mean, assuming watercolor, you can do the same thing. Not consistently. Um, well, watercolor is, um, 
a slightly different rhythm. It's it's very hard to describe. People haven't asked me these questions, so this is great, Lyle. Um, I did a watercolor this weekend. I was at the, in Arcata, at the Arcata Marsh, and I was painting uh, the mud flats with the water rippling through it. Mm-hmm. And the painting was done in 20 minutes. Whereas with an oil painting, I'm not able to take a break. I'm not done at, uh, at that level of ecstatic bliss. It takes me a couple of hours. So, I mean, I got really excited doing that watercolor, but it didn't. I didn't want to do another one. Oh. I wanted to go home and do a deeper one. I wanted to dig deeper with my oils. I wanted to take that picture and the photographs and get into the studio for three or four hours and do a big, giant, mud-flat painting. I guess the ecstasy works with time somehow. I mean, like Mm -hmm. the Maharaji who says meditate, they don't say meditate for a minute, they say meditate for an hour, right? right? I mean, there is something about the deeper you go, the higher you fly or something. Though I've never tried to answer that question that way, but I think it's true. For me, anyway. Yeah. And as far as other art forms, I love acting. But acting doesn't give me the visual high. It disappears time in the same way. But it isn't a visual stone. It's a different, it's a different, uh, scratches a different itch or something. But the loss of time exists in both of those. The idea of, of, just realizing that tons of times has passed at some point right. because you weren't even noticing it. That happens in both those mm-hmm. forms. Mm-hmm. What about for music? I love music. I love to sing, but I've never been successful at it. And I think to me, singing is more, um, it's more like face painting and acting and that it's about connection. Like, I always wanted to sing with Peter because I love Peter and I want to share our love in more than verbal and sexual. I also want to do it in music. It's like another realm to express oneself, right? Mm -hmm. And there is something pretty exciting about singing with somebody. That's that's really a nice tie, for sure. He didn't like singing with you. No. Mm -mm. He hid it from me. You guys were being sung to, to to go to sleep when I wasn't home. I didn't know he sang. When he went to uh, start acting, you guys were five years old? Five. And he came home one day from work and he said, I just got the, I just auditioned for Brigadoon. And I said, what's Brigadoon? And he said, um, it's, a, it's a musical. I'm the, the lead um, hero in the musical. And I said, you're a singer? You sing? I mean, really, leers of, I've never heard him say, and then you, you know, then we went and heard him, and he was an absolutely incredible, wonderful singer. Did you have, did we have a piano before then? No. Were you singing around the home? Yeah, a lot. We had a lot of singing at Jarvis Road. I led sing-alongs. I had all our friends making music together. I did that a lot. Uh, when you were when I was pregnant with you, those days Jarvis Road days, yeah, yeah. another connection thing. Jarvis Road is in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's where I was uh, born. My well, wife was born actually a hospital, but um, 
Yeah, it's so funny. I, I said he didn't like you singing. That's not normally my f- interview style. I don't normally state things about other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, though. It's true. The thing about dad being gone is that, you know, w- the stories we have are, are the truth of are as much as we have about how much truth there is. But I do recall you getting frustrated with him regularly about him denying your singing. Yep. It was a rough point. Did you ever figure out what that was about? Well, I have a guess, but I, there's no way to prove it or anything. But Peter had an extremely flamboyant mother who talked to flying saucer people and led a church wearing these gorgeous clothes. I, I phrase it as led a cult. Actually. Yes, you could call it that. I, I talk about her leading a cult. Okay, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, go on. And he was really, and he did tell me that when he was in high school, and he was really embarrassed about that. He didn't want his friends to see her do that. So that's the only thing, it's the only connection I can have. Like it was okay for him to leave the house and go and be a singer, but it wasn't part of who we were as a couple. It's amazing how much stuff from your parents get, you, you take on as ownership. I remember at one point I, I told somebody I didn't like the play Carousel, the musical Carousel. And they were like, why? And I said, because my dad didn't like it. I have no idea <laughs> if I like it. I don't know if I've ever watched it. But I like, you just take on things of your parents in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I think his rejection of you as a singer and a person that does music stuck to me. I remember being frustrated and irritated by you singing. And I also know that I don't, I'm not very good with my ear and understanding when music works and when it doesn't. I don't have the kind of natural abilities that a lot of our family has, including yourself. And so I'm pretty sure that wasn't a valid judgment call, but more really like an ownership uh, aspect. Could be. Thank you for looking at it that way. I, I don't really know. It's tricky. I do know something else that he did that was similar to that, that I think you took on. Um, You know, back in 1970 plus, women were still not liberated, right? And a lot of that is expressed now. Women are saying the the glass ceiling and women can only go so far and da-da-da-da. When Mountain Community Theater started... Um, we would have meetings, at, you know, in a circle and I would make some suggestion about a way to go or something to do and nobody reacted to it. And then five minutes later, Peter would say the identical thing and people would turn to him and go, good idea, Peter. And I had a lot of that in my life. I had it in college. I had it in high school. A lot of times where my power was ignored or denied. And I don't think men knew they were even doing it. It's like the women were speaking, but the the, the earphones were on. They, they couldn't hear it. It still is a persistent problem all the time in business. And I mean, everywhere, but I'm, saying, I'm suggesting it in business because there's now specific training about this. Wow. This idea that... The woman's completely ignored. The man repeats it and everybody gives kudos to the guy for the thought, even though it was said by somebody else. So much so that I do a a standard thing of anytime I even want to 
agree with another person that's speaking or kind of continue, I make sure to start by saying, like George was saying, or like Linda was saying, or like Diana was saying, blah, blah, blah. Or I want to extend to what that person was saying, or I want to support that with a real clarity to help say, this is the person that brought this up. Yeah, yeah that totally happened at Mount Media Theater. It's such an interesting dynamic because, of course, there's this sexist aspect of it, this, the innate sexism that we all actually have because we're part of a sexist-based society. And then there's the other aspect of Peter was really different in a lot of ways. He was a very charismatic character, and he could do that probably with anybody, and much more so because women are ignored in general. But yeah, I can see that being very frustrating. That was a major conflict with you guys? Um, yes, but, and the irony is that one-on-one, he was more respectful of, of me than any man I've ever ever been with uh, up until I met him. And, and you'll see other women will say that. Women loved Peter because he did listen to them. He did honor us. It's just when he got into a group that his public persona, if we have different ones, would do that. But alone... I mean, that's why I fell in love with him. He was so, he listened, he really heard you and he really acknowledged who you are. Uh, He used to say that one of the reasons he fell in love with me was because of how I treated Adriana, how I was with children. He'd never met anyone that was so good with children. He wanted to have children with me. I mean, most men weren't paying attention to what women did. Yeah. Those, you know, but, <laughs> so that I really have to underline that it was his public persona that did that. That's the dynamic that's so strange about that, though, because it's almost like in public he's betraying you, right? If he wasn't listened to you ever, then at least that's who he was. But in the sense that it was only in the public square that that was felt, it means that publicly he was denying you. And this, that, that's not, that there's something extra hard about that he betrayed me a lot we had huge fights over that Uh, when we did duck island theater for instance i designed the set and then he told everybody that mike eiser designed the set it was my idea but it never got told and i think it came out of his embarrassment about his mother because it wasn't personal i don't know I don't know. We had a couple bad fights about that kind of thing. I have embarrassment by my mother. Mom. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's a guy thing. I mean, you come out of our bodies and then you're supposed to treat us like we're not separate. And somehow maybe that's hard. I mean, I don't know. Or maybe you think that we're not separate and I find that offensive and I think we are separate. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty complicated, isn't it? The other thing that I remember you having—I mean, I don't want to—I don't want to do this too much about Peter because he's been—he's been gone for eighteen years. Yeah, um, but I, one other thing about your art and Peter, Peter was really good about promoting art. He professionally did that for years. He promoted a radio station because of the art. He had a radio show that was focused on artists. Yeah. I'm sure he interviewed you for the radio show at some point, but he interviewed a lot of people. He was very well known for an art supporter. I think that's part of his obit, right? Absolutely. And yet 
you are a struggling painter, a struggling artist. And I remember you being upset at him for him not putting you out there as this amazing artist and promoting you. And I always thought that was interesting. How do you, how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm amazed that you knew that, you know, you don't know what your kids are picking up on, but I don't think I ever sat down and told you that somehow you knew it though. So that's interesting. I think I was around in the environment when you, when you were yelling at him about it, when you guys were fighting about that kind of topic. You know, I, I lived with you for some time. Yeah, you did. <laughs> go, go on. <laughs> that is true. Um, so, yeah, okay. So you, you heard that, of course. You have no secrets in the world, right? Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is he said he didn't feel qualified to do visual arts. He had never done visual arts, and that's true. Everything that he did was based on the performing arts. And I bought that. I, I think that's true. He yeah. uh, felt sort of intimidated by that. And also, was I good enough? I mean, neither of us knew that. There's no answer to why somebody gets famous and somebody else doesn't really. You know, maybe I'm not good enough. That's cool. I can buy that. Interesting thing that did happen is that he finally really acknowledged me as an actor by casting me as in the lead of of picnic he said that over the years a lot he was also when i directed he always supported me he always said like really rosy uh opening night he just said i can't believe what you did that's incredible and he's very supportive so i think a lot of it had to do with his not uh really being confident about the visual arts and also the last year of his life, um, he and I went to a counselor. It was the first time we ever went to counseling, but went to counseling like November of 2003. That was the first time you guys did counseling? Mm-hmm. At the end of his life is the first time you went to counseling. Wow. He never wanted to do it. And also, we didn't have any money. We didn't have money for that until later in our relationship. Right. Okay. We were so living on the edge. So you go to a counselor in 2003 in the last year of his life. Right. Why did you do that? I think the doctor, I think Resnick Sanis might have suggested it. Okay. So what did you learn from the counseling? The doctor said, well, what do you plan to do now that you've quit KUSP? And he said, well, one of the things I thought of is maybe helping Diana in her career. And my mouth dropped open. I had no idea that he was thinking that. And I went, wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) But it was because we were facing his death and he wasn't talking about it to anyone. And it was this big secret. And I was getting more and more freaked out. I'm not a be quiet, pretend everything is fine kind of person, really. And we're, we're so public in the world, you know. And we were having problems with him being sick and trying to stay married within that. And yeah. we only went once, maybe twice. Oh. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, let's go ahead and shift away from my dad. Well, you brought up poverty. Let's, let's go to, let's talk about poverty for a second. Okay. You guys were, I grew up in an environment where we always didn't have money. Right. But we also always had a lot. We had art supplies and we had space. Yep. And music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very privileged and that we were able to 
Well, for instance, when I got pregnant with Marina, we lived in a two-bedroom house, and one of them, one of the bedrooms was five by six. <laughs> you know, it was a very small house on Cresta Drive, and I said, and you were only a year and a, you were you were just barely over a year old. Yeah, because you're in a year and a half apart. So I said, Peter, I can't do this unless you help me. I don't have the emotional equipment to have three kids and be this stressed all the time. Because we didn't have money for babysitters. And I had a temper that I was constantly struggling with. I was a good mother in that I really saw who you, I really honored you guys. But I also had a temper. I needed time alone. I needed to be able to go paint and just, you know, have a life. I couldn't just be a mother full time. So I said, I can't do this unless you help me. And he said, I'm there. I'll work part time. We can take turns with the kids. I will do that. So that was a deliberate choice for him to only work part time. And he only worked part time and you until you guys were in school. So he was always there. He did a lot of he did laundry. And some of the house cleaning. He loved to cook. He was amazing. I mean, he was a generation ahead of our uh, social economic world. And yeah, so that was a deliberate choice. He also even made childcare part of a profession. He started writing grants and That's right. you guys formed a, a child center so that more of the financials and the and the support for the family was based around nonprofit space. That's right. He would take you guys to work with him a day or two a week. Yeah. Where does your temper come from, Mom? Uh, good question. First of all, it's a phys- it was a physical sensation that I first noticed when I was in high school of, of not being in control of it. It just exploding out of me. And it never seemed to have a reason necessarily. But there were a lot of things to be angry about. I mean, I I probably have a super IQ and I'm washing diapers. Uh, I live in a rental and we have one car. And I think I'm extremely talented. And the the first job I was able to get was cleaning other people's houses. When I was in school, really young, I made this decision that women weren't artists. I mean, I made that maybe pre-verbally because my mom used to look, show me art. Um, part of my sitting on your, on your lap having your mom read to you was art books. And I noticed really, really young that there were only males, that the painters were all men. And I noticed that these people were my friends. They were my team. They were my... Um, society. They were me. These are the people that I knew. But wait a minute, they're men. That's embarrassing. I can't be like them. I'm a woman. So that conflict set up really, really young in me. And it wasn't, the conflict was not unconscious, even though I was really young. I just, oh, well, artists are men. I just knew that. Like, you're supposed to vote Democratic. The energy that, you know, the society you're in. Everybody does a certain thing. That's what they did. did, did. And then um, my parents pulled me out of all these schools. I never got to stay in the school very long and form friendships and a group. Like if I'd had other kids, maybe they would be, what, be artists too. I don't know. 
And then um, my mom was constantly supporting my art, loving my art, ignoring my music and, and theater, but loving it. She gave me a lot of attention for it. So I kept doing it, but it was always like a hobby. Mm-hmm. And all the men in my family were the ones with the brains, and the women were all the servers. So you just you know you you mimic or you you model what you grow up with. So that was part of it, and the other part was I was sexually very very frustrated, very, and maybe that makes people angry. I don't know. Part of that energy that never gets expressed. I don't know. I don't have the anger anymore. <laughs> I'm doing what I want a lot now. You don't, you don't have the anger anymore? Mm-mm. I hardly ever get angry now. Interesting. Do you have coping mechanisms not to get, not get angry that just doesn't come up? Well, I think that when you, um, it just doesn't come up. It, it's like I'm doing what I want almost all the time now. I don't, mm. I don't have to worry about money because I got the inheritance. Um, and I think the older you get, the less passion there, you know, physical energy you have. And so if you were to be angry, it'd be, instead of, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I yeah. have to ask a doctor or a therapist about that, about why people calm down when they get older. But it does seem to be a true truism. You calm down. You, you know, I talk about your anger and you talk about feeling like you couldn't, you were kind of set up to not do what you actually wanted to do because of gender right. roles. You put that in your mind and, and then it kind of became a reality. Yeah. At some point, you consciously knew that that wasn't a truism in the world. There are amazing f- female painters and artists. I, oh, God. You yeah. Know, you can right. name a lot of them. So at some point you ran into that situation where when you kind of got that consciously where you already had three kids. I think I well, it's weird because. I went back to school when you guys were when you guys were old enough that I you know could go back to UCSC, and of course I majored in painting. And Ed Carrillo told me I was a master, but I think he was kidding. He was the head of the art department at that time. I didn't believe it. The other people in the classrooms, like instead of saying, "Wow, that's really great," they said. Well, I can really see you love those roses, which is okay. It's how you encourage children. Right, right. Rather than respecting me as an equal. There was a sort of thing. And then um, uh, when I was in graduate school, I hired somebody to tell me what to do with my art. Well, first of all, I asked the art department at UCSC, you haven't given us any direction on what to do with our painting skills. And they said, well, that's not what our school's about. It's a liberal arts. It's not about training you to be a professional artist. That's not what we do here. I went, okay. So I dropped that. And then I did have this guy and he told me what to do. But what he said was, a hundred years ago, there was X number of galleries in San Francisco and Y number of painters. And now there's half as many galleries and four times the amount of painters. And then he said, what you do is you contact all the galleries and, and find out if they're accepting new work. And I wrote all these postcards, like 50 of them. And Marina 
had um, Marine almost died like the next day from a seizure. And I left all those postcards in the drawer and I never mailed them. And it's almost like maybe an excuse. I can say, well, I'm not an artist because I'm a mother. And that's a shitty thing. I don't like that. I don't want to be that person. But there's a little bit of truth to it. Um, the combination of all those things. And actually, Marina's health is, is more important to me than whether or not somebody buys a painting. It's just not very important. What's important is continuing to do the work. Whether I'm, not, I'm out there in the world is just ego. Mm-hmm. And since I have enough money to live in, I don't even really need the the money. It would be nice. Like, for instance, I'd like to pay off some of that house we're buying together. Um, I'd like to live near the coast again. You know, sure. But I don't need it. I need to keep painting, and I do. And I have my little art group, and people like my work. And I put them, oh, Facebook has been so wonderful because people actually like my work. I get the acknowledgement that I need. So my ego doesn't fry. The whole 30 years that Marina's been ill, it's more important. Why, why do we care? Why, what is this about this ego about other people liking what we create? I don't know. <sighs> I want to know the answer to that. <laughs> well, I don't think we live in a vacuum. As much as I want to believe that, I don't think it's true. Like when my friend Chuck who's on Facebook with me too, who's a painter that lives up here. When he sells something, it hurts. I feel jealousy. When I go down the hall in your house and the painting that used to be there isn't there anymore, I feel hurt. I I experience rejection. So some part of me would like to have that, would like to have more kudos in the world. And then I think it's not important. But it still still comes up every time he sells something. And I find myself really struggling with loving him anyway. Because, you know, I think he's wonderful. I love him. I've known him for 20 years. I've, the whole time I've been up here, uh, we had an experience where I had just lost Peter. And he lost his son, he and his wife, at the same time. And so when we came together, it was one of those instant intimacy moments that you have with somebody that's not a love affair or anything like that. It's just, wow, you know, man, you lost your son. So, you know, I love the guy. Why am I hating him? Because he's successful. That's terrible of me. That's small. I don't want to be that person. So I think I better sell some pigs. You don't. But the thing is, (laughs) (laughs) that's not necessarily the answer. I mean, the reason why you're upset at him The reason why you're upset at him is because you want to do that. It's the jealousy jealousy. aspect. It's if you were at an event together and both you sold paintings, you'd be very happy for him at the same time. Right. So it's really not about him selling the painting. No. But, you know, the interesting thing is that you you enjoy painting it by itself. Why not paint your paintings, look at them for a day and then destroy them and never have to worry about other people's judgment on them? Well, that's a possibility. But I think they're worth more than that. What I'm doing now is giving them away. That's my new deal. I'm giving them away. I'm asking people to pay the postage and the frame if I buy money. Why are you doing that? Oh, why am I giving them away? Because I have no more room. 
<laughs> because I've been painting for 50 years <laughs> and my little 8 by 10 shit is so packed. Man, I'm shoving another painting in there. You know, it's you got to keep your, your space neat. But um, Bruce and I went out one afternoon and I said, we're going to burn some of these. This is ridiculous. A friend of mine inspired me to do that. But um, I can't keep doing that. I, if the painting's not very good, I can do that. But if it if it solves a problem or inspires a certain part of me, I don't want to. I don't want to burn it. I'd rather give it away. I just gave away a painting last week, and the people were so thrilled. Made them so happy. They're in the middle of repainting their house, and they were all excited about where to put it. It's nice. My friend Melanie, who's a professional artist, Melanie, Melanie yeah. animator and illustrator she does not like the idea of artists doing things for free and the idea of you and 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 i've started to go yeah that's not right you really got to figure out how artists get paid that's important and the idea that you're giving away the paintings is more upsetting to me than you destroying them really why because it feels like an injustice to you if somebody else enjoys it and they take it and they like it then they're taking something free from you for no reimbursement. That seems like a, um, a taking advantage of you. At the same time, when I heard that you had a bonfire and burned some of the paintings, I got really upset about that. I was like, what are you doing? You shouldn't do that. Um, and, and yeah, the destroying them is your choice. It, it's more about someone getting something from you for the suffering that you've had on become, being an artist. Because I feel like you've actually, and maybe it's not, maybe you always having joy when you're actually painting. But the experience of being a professional painter has brought a lot of uh, sorrow for you, uh, is been my perception. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not alone. I mean, there are a lot of people that have that, too. You know what's worse? Is somebody that puts something on Facebook that I don't think is very good. It certainly doesn't have the skill that I have, and they sold it. I, I see that a lot, and that's a really yeah. weird feeling. Do you want to get real about how I feel about your art right now? I don't know. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there should there should be a little fear in here. It's a scary thing. It's impre- when I was when I was younger, I always imagined that at some point in my life you would be gone and there would be all of you would be very famous as a painter and there'd be all these paintings and everybody would want your paintings and it would be a big thing about who I was was I was Diana, the famous painter Diana's son. And I remember thinking about that. That's that's what I envisioned. And I think partially had to do with just collecting all these paintings and seeing this ma- massive amount of work. And more recently, most of the paintings I see of yours, they don't work for me. I'm like, no, I see the skill. The skill is totally rock on, right? You're, you're amazing in that quality. But there is something for me that doesn't work. And I don't know if that's representational of a lot of people and that's why you're not selling or if it's just my relationship with you i have no idea what it really is because paintings are so subjective there's no way to know there's no way to know i mean the fact that you acknowledge the skill that's all we can really judge isn't it with art i mean how can you no i don't think so i don't think so there's something else but i'm not a i don't know (laughs) but i also sometimes feel that I feel like any moment you're going to do a shift in what your paintings are and they are going to be exceptional. I still feel this way. 
And I've seen you shift a few times where your skill level's gotten so good that I'm like, oh my God, that's a totally different style. But at the same time, and this is another thing that's really challenging about living with, uh, you know, my mother being a painter is that there are paintings of yours that you did years ago that have something about them that are really, really good, even though the skill was not nearly the same. And I think, well, is that because I just have a history of that painting? That painting is a part of my life and part of the, my visual experience of what the world is? Or is there something about that painting that's really strong and good? Example of this is actually like really your Alba, your Alba trail, the, the trail at the bottom of the Karen to Mandy's trail, that trail yeah, um, painting. Mm-hmm. There's something about that that is just really compelling for, as a painting. Do you have that painting? I don't, I don't, I think that, I don't know who has that painting, but somebody we know has that painting. (laughs) I have no idea where it is. I'd like that painting. (laughs) (laughs) Except that I don't, I don't know if I really want the painting. I mean, paintings are tricky. But the other aspect is that you've gone through different eras. I can see your paintings and know the time period that you did them. Mm -hmm. There's the whole internal series of of Lompico and then also of um, the houses in um, Los Angeles. Malibu. You know, those have a, a similar mm-hmm. kind of style to them. Malibu houses, yeah. Which we're also, you're also missing a Malibu house. Yeah. The brick. Yeah. That was out Alba, by the way. What? what? Uh, the Malibu one you were missing. We're still missing. Oh, you did, it was at Alba at some point? I think it was at Alba at some point, yeah. Did you see the picture of your house in Sunland with it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Then I recognized yeah. it. So part of me wants to... Like when I hear that that thing about Peter not supporting your art and then wanting to when he was when it was too late for him and his activities in his life, I think, well, maybe I could do that. I, I'm always kind of, I'm always thinking, like, maybe I could just make the marketing side of it work. But I don't think it's just about the marketing. I think there's something about your paintings that are not that level of selling. There's something about the style or something. And I'm wondering if it's because you if it's connected around this, this bliss that you're feeling, that you're not putting on your what other people might like, what the, the kid wants on their face, the actor who wants to make the audience enjoy, if you're not putting more enough of that into the painting. I can't imagine because I don't know what people like. I can't imagine coming at it from that point of view. I mean, I hear you. It kind of makes sense in a way. Because certainly with face painting, I only do what the other what they want. You know, I have a thousand images, and they get to pick the one they want. Uh, so I know how to do that. I don't know enough to do. I don't think I know what that is. I, I, I in fact, I'm really far away from it. Far away from understanding other people. Yeah, from what they like. I, I mean, really, there's a painting recently that I did which I felt was ugly. And I actually called it the ugly painting because it wasn't pretty. It was this pile of mud all twisted up because of the tires going in the mud. And I I put it on Facebook and so many people disagreed with me. They said, this is not ugly. This is beautiful. I'm going, what? I mean, I really don't know what people like. (laughs) That's just... That's just the internet. I... <laughs> Mom, the, the dichotomy I have with you is so... You, the way you talk about you yourself has so many threads to pull away. Yes. For example, you say you've never been a successful artist, and yet you 
own a house that you bought because of your skill as an artist. You say you don't really understand what people want, except that you run a a face painting business. You've trained other people to that face painting business. You've done it in multiple places, and you've pulled in thousands of dollars in a day just by putting a temporary piece of work on someone's face. Uh, That's knowing what people want. That's a successful business. That's about knowing what people want. Yeah, I'm good at that. You, you have this narrative that's not doesn't match to what I well, see. Well, I think I think of face painting as a business. It's per, it's commercial art. Oil painting is not commercial art. It's more my, uh, you know, being with God in some sense. They seem like two different things to me. Yes. Also, you know, I didn't just I didn't just become a face painter. I created the genre. There was no face painting in fairs. We were the first ones. I know. There were birthday parties where clowns put a little design on a kid. The other cheek face painting was the first face painting in any any fair ever. We did it first. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very powerful who I am anonymously, right? Nobody, nobody knows that I've done that. But uh, I, in fact, I'm talking to people about it now because it's, you know, it's been over 40 years. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was Santa Cruz County Fair saying, you know, we're thinking maybe face painting might work at fairs. We don't really know what's ever been done. What do you think? Yeah, I'll do it. I'm, I'm there. I'm good, you know. <laughs> and I also, I'm not even, I don't know how to say this, but in the 80s, there was no place you could buy clothes with lace on them. And there was no place you could buy clothes with glitter. That, that didn't exist. So when I wanted to be a French Pierrot type clown, a beautiful clown, I had to go to secondhand stores and buy old tablecloths. And then create these costumes out of the tablecloths. And I did that for 10 years in the most popular venues in the state of California. And then I watched lace become part of our culture over time. And then one day I went to a store in the mall. And one of the blouses I created was now mass-produced. It was exactly the same one. They must have gotten it from a photo. It's a certain pink lace around here, and you know. So, so I know I'm a successful artist. I know who I am, but I'm not in the gallery scene making tons of money on paintings, oil paintings. It's a it's a one piece of incompletion that kind of haunts me. I love all of that. And I, and I've heard a little bit of that before and I agree with you. And I, uh, I questioned in our conversation before is that, is that happened because, you know, if you'd had a penis, people would have heard you differently. Like that's a very big part of it. I think that the sexism that's innate, but I also, I'm also curious, you, you, you're, you're saying that face painting is a, a business side of things and, and your oil painting is a spiritual, a, 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 a religious or a, a love, a passion, a heart kind of thing. Except that the only part that you're not happy with about oil painting is it's not commercial. Right. I mean, that's the thing is you, you are making it be not commercial by defining it as the non-commercial side of what you do. Uh, you think I'm creating it myself uh, by thinking about it that way? Could be. <laughs> not necessarily. Yeah, but, I mean, it's definitely an idea <laughs> worth chewing on. 
I'm also wondering if the feeling of ecstatic bliss that you see trying to reproduce that is the thing that you're banging your head against. How do I get that? The feeling of ecstatic bliss that everything's beautiful and amazing and show that to people in your paintings. That's, that's a hard one, right? Because the reason (laughs) when I get into that space, it's because I've been looking at art all day and that, you know, four hours into doing an art open studio where I'm looking all day, all of a sudden I'm having my coffee cup and I'm like, this is amazing. Like everything's pretty. (laughs) That opens up to me as well. Uh, Yeah. But it's not because of one item. Yeah. Yeah. I get that when, when I go to a museum, but it's not quite as strong. That's neat that you get that. You touched on the idea that you don't really understand what people want. And I would say, if I were to list the 10 attributes of you, one of the things I would say is you don't understand other people. I think there's a real challenge with you having an idea of what people are thinking and engaging with the world and then trying to engage and be comfortable in that space and kind of missing and saying something that really hurts somebody and not really getting how that happened. That seems to be like a big part of who you are in some sense. And I think that's about a misalignment with, a, with what's going on for other people. What do you think of that? That's a huge topic. I, okay, fact is that I was pretty isolated growing up. That's true. You know, I had a girlfriend in the third grade, and it hurt me so much to never see her again. And then the fourth grade, and then the fifth grade. Who connected that I, who I connected with was the children. You know, I've always been able to connect with children. But it's true that I have not been, quote, a popular person in a lot of ways. I get that. I don't see, like you seem to, that I hurt people without knowing it. Maybe once or twice I've done that, but isn't doesn't everybody have that? Doesn't everybody have, like you said this morning, that, oh, shoot, why did I say that? Isn't that a normal part of life? At some level, yeah, totally. But I think, you know, it's very hard to give you this kind of feedback because it's, you know, I love you. I don't want to hurt you. Right. And... No, I I think a a big part of you not, us being not closer is because of the danger you pose emotionally to people, to me and to people around me. Such a heavy thing to hear. Yeah. I mean, well, we went through a whole experience of like not seeing each other for a couple of years because of something you said. Which I still feel you were wrong. Adriana was standing next to you and she didn't have that reaction about her kids. So I think that's coming from you. But. Nevertheless, I must I must take what you're saying in and listen to it because you're an extremely intelligent person and people love you and you spend a lot of time really listening to people. So it's not like, oh, he's just a weirdo. No, I, I trust you in a lot of ways. So some part of me has to let that in. I have to think about it. I have to go, hmm, you know, that kind of thing. The caveat there should be that I might be good at that with lots of people and I might be really horrible about yeah, that with you. Know. Like my relationship with you is unlike <laughs> any other relationship I have. Right. So it's not. It's complicated. It's, it's complicated <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Also, I think there's another aspect and that is that a lot of times people have been jealous of me and I didn't know it. I couldn't read that at 
I was once at a fair with Cece and Maim, and we were bored. We we couldn't make we didn't we weren't making any money. So I wandered off and got my tea leaves read. You know, I, I went to the the tarot lady, and I walked in and sat down, and she said. Do you know that the the people that you're with are jealous of you and they're talking behind your back? And I said, what? You've got to be kidding me. That's crazy. That doesn't mean anything. I don't, I don't get it. And years later, I went to visit Maim when she was in the hospital. And she was kind of drugged because she just had surgery, I guess. But I walked in the door and she said, oh, thank God I can stop being jealous of you. And I talked to Cece about that, and it turns out that I was an extremely beautiful woman who's really, really smart, and I had the best man that anyone had. Like, people would say, yeah, you know, they would say, your family, that's what I love about you. You know, like I'd say, I wish I could sell a painting, and they would say, your family, man, you are incredible. I mean, so maybe some of that is jealousy. Maybe some of it is like with Hillary Clinton. People are intimidated by powerful women. People don't know how to relate. They can't vote for them. We're still made. I mean, I'm just suggesting that some of that might be that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but that's but that's exactly that's exactly the kind of thing that I think you're not really necessarily aware of not not the hillary clinton thing and the powerful woman i think that's true i think that's also another dynamic that's happening is that you speak up you're strong you're clear you're communicating well and people go what the hell i'm not used to this that's a that's going to be a thing that happens with women hopefully not (laughs) hopefully it'll stop happening but um but the other aspect of like you never thinking that there'd be any kind of jealousy from other people not even understanding that that's a dynamic of other people um that's I, th- I don't think that's that uncommon. I think it. I think it's if we have that feeling, we have to check our egotism. Yeah. Right. We should probably be more self conscious of that. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of touching on this idea that you can be completely blind to how people are thinking. Anybody can have this experience, right? And I think that you have you have a this really amazing way of looking at how the world could be yes. and maybe should be. You drive from that position a lot. And I think that you're maybe more in touch with that kind of like idealism aspect of how the world could be. And so when you're around a lot of people that you love and in a space that's really wonderful, you're existing right in that nook of potential and amazingness. And you'll speak from that space where it conflicts with practicality or other people's where other people are. And and examples of that are the most recent thing that I think we probably won't get into right now, but I can go back to the very first time I kind of stood up to you and said, this was really wrong. You did a wrong thing here. And that was in high school when I was doing something that I now kind of regret doing. Um, Oh, that was terrible. That was definitely my fault. Yeah. So I'll just fill everybody in. When I was in high school, I happened to date a teacher. Um, I was 18. She was a teacher at the school and at the time, I thought there was nothing wrong with that. My parents knew her and they knew about the relationship. But you were speaking to a friend of mine who you assumed at the time knew about this relationship. She did not know. It was a very secret relationship because, of course, now in retrospect, I think of that as probably not the best choice for that teacher <laughs> um, and or nor for me. But in any case, uh, at the time, it was like a miss. You know, we, we'd been really clear that this was not something that was public. And then you went ahead and told somebody and, and it kind of blew up from there. But it was more that like the reason you're telling them 
And you got really angry and she lost her job. Yeah. And so I had no idea that that would, because you were 18. So I I was completely wrong. I didn't, and I spent a half, a long time talking to the principal and saying, this isn't fair. He's 18. We all knew about it. It's not, and he said, no, it's a law. Well, and rightfully so. I mean, when I was when I was 30 and I saw 18 year old kids, I was like, ew, <laughs> it's like not OK. Right. So uh, the, the, the side of it, the, the piece of it that I think that I was I'm bringing up for you is about you were coming from this place of loving this young lady who was a friend of mine. Yes. And you've known her for a long time and she was great and she was in a play with me and you were really you loved her and you felt that it was so silly, all this complication around it. And you were at, a, I think you were face painting at the time. Um, You're in that space of, well, the world shouldn't be like that. It should really be like this. And so then you started talking about something that you kind of knew logically probably shouldn't have, but it's because the worldview that you were from in at that moment totally matched talking to, her, to your friend about this. It was fine. And that's the thing I'm talking about. It's like, you're in this place that isn't really where everybody else is all the time. And you'll operate that way. And when you say, things that hurt other people almost always is coming from that space where it really is not about the crap that's going on in the world. It's almost like a monk perspective or, you know, another, a shifted from the way other people are living, but probably in a way we always should move towards. And it's odd to me that that sometimes can come out as hurting people really badly. Yeah. Well, I was really naive. I had no idea that there was a law. I didn't know. I thought the law had to do with minors. I did not know. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about the law and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, yeah, but that, that is not of issue. What I'm talking about is the position you can be in. You're right that maybe you just didn't think there was the law, but we were, it was very clear there was a secret and we were tasking you not to tell anybody. It was very clear when you did that. So it wasn't. I don't remember you telling me not to say anything. I'm sure you did, but I don't <laughs> definitely remember. Definitely didn't it. talk about that. That's okay. It's it's okay. I mean, it's. I'm just trying to get to. I think there was something very poignant about you saying I don't really understand other people with regards to art. I think you operate different than most people, and I'm not sure how much you're aware of that. I think it's really great that you're trying to get me to understand this. I really admire you for this. Really. <laughs> And I think you're wrong. No, I don't think you're wrong. I think I am. That is the definition in our society. That's the definition of being an artist. Is that the artist steps outside of the circle and comments on it. You know, that's what we learned in our liberal arts education. So I don't feel um, it's, you know, it's probably true, right? Because I'm being looked at by you. You know, I, I don't look at myself that way. I can't really tell um, when what I think is an innocent, honest is actually uh, not a good thing to talk about. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm confused because in my experience, no matter what I talked about, I wasn't listened to. You know, I had to move and never see that person again. I've happened so much that I think I sort of forgot. I stopped trying to be like other people. Why should I be like other people? You know, what's so good of that? You know? <laughs> I don't think you should. I, I think that 
I mean, what we call this contemporary speak, we call this uh, neurodiversity. That's kind of what I'm talking about here. I've got to look that up. I don't know what that means. Neuro. Tell me what that means. Diversity. Well, it's just a a blanket term for uh, it. It it basically (laughs) there's this idea, of course, that every there is a normality. Right. And that. There is like people that fit in this one space and there's other people that aren't in that space. And we've labeled these clinically and all that. And now I think the terminology that it was trying to come to is like, no, no, there's a giant neurodiversity going on. People operate in different ways in all different ways. And trying to say that what something's clinical and something's not clinical doesn't make any sense. It does make sense to give people tools to understand that not everybody's thinking the same way that they're thinking mm-hmm. so that they can go, OK, so these people might not be thinking about blah, blah, blah. They might be thinking about something else. How do I turn on my curiosity to figure, to figure out where they're coming from so that I get a little bit more aligned with them? Or I tell them, hey, by the way, I'm not going to be in line with you because I don't do what you do. That's the idea of, the, of that label. It's a great label. I don't have, and I also agree with you. You said something earlier about that's what artists do. And I think that's right. I, I really, I think that's a really important thing to think about is that We've had people that shift the way the world works, and we, those are different types of people, and those are artists, and those are people that think outside, outside the space. Outside the box. And, yes, <laughs> and the, the world is better for it, and humans are actually probably in the space we are because we have this diversity of people involved. So is there any other way, any other thing that you want to say to me that where you were hurt and you haven't said it yet, so we can let go of it, so that I can apologize. Or is there anything else in there that we want to? <laughs> oh, this is this is the thing, and we've been trying to talk about for for the last four years. Is that it's not specific things that you've done to apologize for. There's no need to that. I have no need for apologies from you. I know that you never have any malicious intent, and I know that you never are in a space of wanting anything but for the best for me and sharing love and sharing wonderful ideas with me. And I have great conversations with you about all these things. Yes. Um, and this is actually, I mean, we've had, we have wonderful conversations about many things yeah. and in no, there's nothing that you need to apologize for me to me. There's this desire I have for you to be in a space where you, I guess if I were to talk about it like metaphorically, it would kind of be like the, the bull in the China shop. It's like, are you angry at the bull in the china shop? No. Should the bull not be in the china shop? Well, yeah, that's probably best. But then if you love the bull and that's the only time you want to spend time with them, then you've got a problem. <laughs> and that's kind of where it comes to. It's like, I don't really want to change your nature, but I don't want the dishes around me to be broken. So that's the space I'm coming in with this idea that, and you know, I don't think we've solved this. I think the solution we have right now in our lives is... I see you in spurts of time. I see you for two days. Yeah, that works. <laughs> and, then, and then everything's great. It's wonderful. And I, I wish it was longer. And we go, no, 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 two days. <laughs> well, Bruce says the three days, the three day fish rule. If you leave fish out by the third day, it stinks. And that's what visiting is about. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, maybe. You don't have a China shop. You have a very healthy, functioning family. There's nothing that can be broken. Mm, no. Everybody has a China shop. Oh. Everybody has a China. Everybody's, everybody's vulnerable and 
at the moment of feeling like no one loves them and has self-doubts about what they're doing in the world and if they have an impact. I mean, you've been listening to this podcast series. Every single person is having this kind of thing go on. There's a few anomalies, but then again, maybe those people didn't didn't share me with me the real thing that was going on for them. Yeah. I think everybody's extremely brittle. That's cool. And I think you have a really good coping mechanism that's served you well. And that is to to be strong about yourself and to know who you are and be okay with who you are. You've had to do that a long time. And I think sometimes that mechanism and your tendency to break China sometimes, the break China, you're called out on it, and then you kind of bring up this barrier of like, no, I'm a good person. And that's like a wall then to not get vulnerable about what's really happening there. Or the other people don't want to be vulnerable with you. I, I don't know which one it is. I feel like I'm beating you up. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want you to feel that way either. I just wish I knew. Well, maybe it's not for public viewing. Maybe we need to commit. Uh, maybe we need to finish this conversation with just the two of us. So we don't feel like it's or maybe we could do it and then you could edit it out. And so we did continue this conversation talking about specific examples of what I was trying to express to her. And in listening back to it, wow, I didn't want to talk about it. I think she did. I think she was fine with really engaging. But I was rushed and not describing, not being clear, feeling the pressure of dinner about to happen, had to end the conversation. And there's so much more I want to talk with my mom about. So I've pulled that out. I won't say anything more about it. But mom, we'll talk more. I wanted to talk about bringing up kids because I think you did something really amazing. There's all these qualities about me that are just innate that I don't even think about until I'm reflected with other people that don't have them. And you've probably heard in this conversations, a lot of people have this dialogue, this inner dialogue that's kind of judging them the whole time. I just don't really have that. I sometimes have that about my body. Like if I'm fat or something, I sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm too, you know, I'm a little bit bummed about it, but nothing is like tearing me up. I feel good about myself in general. And when I don't, it's such an anomaly that I go, oh, there's something wrong with me. I must be not feeling like I must be depressed. Oh, and I just understand that's the state that I'm going to get out of. And that's that strong. I, I, who knows who we are, how we are, who we are. But knowing my two sisters as well, it's clearly something you set up with us that we just feel good most of the time about who we are. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So do you want me to try to talk did about that? Did you feel that way as a kid or did you? F well, I'm really curious. I'm curious. Did, did you know at some point that your upbringing, something was not right or something was right? And you like, were you changing how you were raised or were you emulating how you were raised when you raised us? Some of both. Being around the arts was definitely how I was raised, that the arts were important. So that for sure I gave to you. Um, respect for intellect, loving having conversations, all of that stuff. But there's something that happened to me when I was 11 that changed everything. I was in an environment where people treated children a certain way that was so uh, unconscious. We just were the way we were, right? And then Virginia was born. And Virginia came home from the hospital, and she was a complete person. I was 11, so I was young enough to see it. 
I knew who she was. I saw that her whole soul was complete. And everybody was treating her like a dog or like a doll. Oh, aren't you cute? You know, they had this fakeness going on. And what I saw was she understood everything. She just didn't have words for it. And so I started treating them like people, not kids. And I've done that all my life. I'm very conscious of respecting children for who they are. For instance, I had friends that had stuff around their living room that the children weren't allowed to touch. And what? And they would say, no, bad, spank. What I would have is a completely free, anywhere you wanted to be in the house that you could get to, you could touch, you could play with, you could manipulate, and I would support that. That I would support who you really are. And so I think that's, that is the defining aha for me. And I've spent my life doing that. I can't stand it when people talk down to kids. I can't stand it when they tease them. Like the way people tease. You don't do that in my world. You don't tease. You don't make fun of who people are. You, as best you can, support their freedom. It's like they're They are experience machines, and they're constantly going to the next thing. And the only thing that I felt sad about when you were little is that I was not unable to keep giving you new opportunities because, you know, you only had certain. So we had to find a daycare center that would do the same thing. And then we sent you guys to um, Cabrillo where they had that same philosophy. You don't change the kid. You give them more opportunities. So it's all about opportunities. Well, there is a little bit about Diana Wright Troxel. You can actually find her paintings at dianawright.troxel.com or just search for Diana Troxel. You'll find her. I'm ending the conversation here not because it's really the end. In fact, this was the break when we had dinner. And at dinner, I talked a little bit and thought about the the conversation we had so far and started feeling kind of bad. My mom and I called each other back up and we talked for another hour, all on tape, with some really wonderful things. And I would love to put that on this right now. But truth be told, I need to sleep. So I'm going to hold off on that one. Not sure what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll add it as a bonus one when I get around to editing it. Thanks, Mom. Tonight has been fantastic, and you're amazing. I love you.